This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Balance of Power on 103.9, 1450 WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Also available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, and joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Former Donald Trump political guru Steve Bannon is telling Republicans privately that Donald Trump should become Speaker of the House in 2022. You heard it right, folks. All he would have to do is win a House seat in Florida. And if Republicans take back the House in 2022, he would be a shoe in Now, the story has been spreading like wildfire on the right. Could this happen? Is this going to happen? Alicia? Look, A, it's Steve Bannon, who I do not hold in the highest regard, who's trying to keep himself in the news. And this certainly did it. He said it to, you know, a group of Republicans in Massachusetts where, I guess Matt John Quincy Adams is the only former president to ever be a congressman again. So it was it was a ripe crowd to give this kind of tale to. Uh, I don't see it happening for several reasons. I mean, a a Democrat currently holds the seat in Florida that Trump would have to run in unless he moves again. But B, why would he? I mean, he's going to spend the next year or more dealing with legal and civil suits and, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And he's got to go make more money. I mean, he just does. I mean, his businesses suffered under his presidency. The Trump organization is financially in decline and he is going to focus on what he focuses on, which is making more money. I, I mean, I know his ego is huge and he wants to have a comeback, but I don't see where he why he would possibly do that. My Steve Bannon is back and he's bad. Steve Bannon, you know, I mean, the poor demented guy. I mean, what what must go through that twisted brain of his? He might be up late at night, lying in bed, sweating and wondering whether he's going to shave or not. That's probably first on his mind. Then he's going to wonder whether or not it will how he'll look with his hair slicked back. Should he use gel or not? You know, what what goes on in that guy's head is just is is anybody's guess. So up he comes with this lovely idea. Former President Trump will drive his golf cart around the congressional district, which the current congresswoman run won by, I think, 59 percent against a right wing trumpeter who achieved thirty nine point one percent. And he'll ride around in his golf cart because he's the greatest and he will get elected to Congress. And then once in Congress, his colleagues, of course, will bow and scrape. They'll treat him more like a president than a congressman, and they will make him Speaker of the House. And once he's Speaker of the House, he will immediately move to impeach Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for stealing the election from him. So, I mean, if 
I think it's really I think I think Steve Bannon um, as a Bannon talking point has come up with with an elegant, elegant scheme. Um, you know, one thing that I, I wondered was whether or not a convicted felon from Florida would be disenfranchised by state law from holding a, a federal seat. Uh, and I just I just don't know the answer. I'm betting that it's permissible uh, under uh, Florida law for somebody convicted of felonies to uh, hold a congressional seat. And so what 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 I guess Bannon is thinking about is as Trump is either battling indictments from New York on tax fraud, voter fraud, uh, mail fraud, RICO, RACO, racketeering, um, conspiracy with his family to commit the above mentioned offenses, as well as battling and fighting off the Georgia election fraud um, uh, indictments over the next couple of years. He also will have time to run for Congress. And I think that it's just I think it's a great idea. I'm I'm I, I I'm I'm a big fan of both Bannon and the former president. I say, go for it. Don't let little niggling, niggling trifles like felony indictments or felony trials or even felony convictions uh, hamper the former president from running for office. Why? I mean, he could ride around in his golf cart in prison stripes, uh, c carrying the chains and shackles with him as he runs for office. That would probably uh, enliven the whole debate. So I say go for it. And Matt Robeson, what is your take on the future of Donald John Trump? I think that my co-panelists here are actually both spectacularly wrong, which I kind of relish saying because I sort of occupy the center lane here in this, in this panel. I remember very well in 2015 when Donald Trump came down an escalator in Trump Tower and we all laughed. He gave this outlandish speech and we all said, oh yeah, he's just trying to sell steaks and ties and other merchandise. Jon Stewart on The Daily Show laughed. He made the little kissy motion to his mouth he said, this will never happen. Maybe I won't even retire because this is going to be such a juicy opportunity for satire. No one was laughing a year later. And mark my words, yeah, okay, sure. Maybe Steve Bannon is trying to be relevant. Maybe he's floating a trial balloon. Maybe he's just trying to stay in the conversation. But make no mistake, this is real. If you really think about it, there is no good reason that this couldn't happen. And actually, it's a great political idea for, for Donald Trump. So first of all, Florida is expected to gain two seats in redistricting. So there are going to be open seats. The Florida legislature is Republican held, meaning they're going to draw open Republican seats. Donald Trump would immediately clear the field. He doesn't have to run in the seat that he you know sits in in Mar-a-Lago. He could buy a house anywhere, make that his principal residence. So... With $61 million in his pack, the money is no object. And frankly, if he's in a Republican seat, Alicia will tell you, she, she does consult, she's been in campaigns on the Republican side, the seat would be his for the asking. 
The only question that would arise is, will the Republicans retake the House overall? By the way, to Paul's point, he would not be disenfranchised. The Republican-led legislature actually restored the voting rights of felons, and he would not be barred from running for office. Just ask, Paul, your former colleague, Alcee Hastings, who was impeached as a federal judge and is a member of Congress. So there would be absolutely no impediment to him doing this. And from a political standpoint, it would be a great move for him. It would be an absolute dumpster fire for the country, but he wouldn't have to actually run. If he won, he would, as you said, Ken, be a total shoe in to become the speaker. And once he was the speaker, he wouldn't have to actually do any work that goes with the job. He could go give rambling press conferences. He would surely be replatformed on Twitter and Facebook and anywhere else because he would be a notable public figure, third in line to the presidency, by the way, should anything happen to the president or the vice president. And he could hand off to Kevin McCarthy all the responsibilities of running the House while he immediately commences his campaign for the presidency. So sure, dismiss it if you want. Maybe it is just a Steve Bannon piece of insanity, but you heard it here first. I think this is very real. I think there is every reason in the world why this could happen. All right. All right. You heard it here first on balance of power. Don't prove me wrong. Does anyone, does anyone disagree? I mean, I, 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 so first of all, the guys underwater by bill, by, by, by millions, maybe billions of dollars, any, any of the criminal prosecutions we're going to see are also going to go after his his vaunted fortune. So it and 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 since he committed um, uh, voter fraud, who knows what's going to happen to the money in his pack? I mean, maybe maybe that can be uh, taken back by the federal government. Um, so he, he, but, you know, running for Congress is cheap. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take very much. And even if he's only left with a couple of million bucks, you're right. He could he could uh, all he has to do is announce and he doesn't really have to campaign. He can ride around in his golf cart and his and his prison stripes and his handcuffs and and carry the ball and chain with him. Um, so, you know, you're you're scaring me. I, I, I confess I'm sitting here trembling in my little blue Democratic booty boots. Um, um, and I don't know. I'm not sure who I'd run against Donald Trump, um, but it's a frightening prospect. You you paint a frightening picture. You're a frightening person and you have succeeded in scaring the you know what out of me. You only think I'm frightening because you can see my face. Our radio listeners can't. Yeah, but, but but they heard what you said. They heard what they heard what you said. He does have a point, though. You know, I'm not scared. And here's the other reason. There's a whole lot of what and ifs that have to happen. And the big one being that Republicans have to take the House, because if the Republicans don't take the House and Donald Trump does this, then he's just a congressman. And that's not as fun. And that's a lot of work. And I think someone's going to tell him, excuse me, Mr. President, you're going to have to like sit in really long, boring committee hearings. And you're going to have to have meetings with people and discuss really boring things. I mean, those, Congressman Hodes knows this better than the rest of us. But Matt, you were there. I'm on the outside. But all the fun stuff you guys do that we see and fundraisers and fancy meals. That's all couched in a whole lot of kind of 
policy wonky work, which is not exactly what Donald Trump is looking to do. <laughs> All right. If you would just indulge me for a second in, uh, let me, let me, let me play devil's advocate here. Um, so game this out. First of all, will Republicans retake the House? Well, we don't know. History is certainly on their side, right? Since World War II, the seat not hold, the, 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 the party not holding the presidency has gained seats in every midterm election. They're only six seats away from holding a majority. And it is quite possible that redistricting alone will allow them to get there all things being equal, the seats being gained in Texas, Florida, North Carolina, et cetera, where Republican-led legislatures will control the redistricting levers. So there's a really good shot. But let's look at the counter case for a second. Let's say Republicans don't retake the House. You're Donald Trump. You've just shelled out 10 million bucks, probably don't even need to do that because you're gonna have a seat drawn for you by your friends in the Florida legislature, by your ally, Ron DeSantis. And so you don't have to do anything. You don't have to lift a finger and you're in Congress. All right, Republicans don't take the house. So you say, all right, I resign my seat. I'm running for president. You pay absolutely no political penalty from your constituents in Florida. They'll still continue to love you. You just immediately turn around and run for president. You can transfer all the federal funds that you raised in your uh, run for Congress and put it right into your presidential campaign. And then there'll be a special election and a safe Republican seat. Republicans will hold the seat. No harm, no foul. And finally, finally, my, my last argument here is okay, maybe he's way underwater in terms of his personal finances. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But he's already, we've seen this movie before. He's already proven that you can run for political office and try and make money for your business at the same time. And he can surely rerun that playbook. It only helps Donald Trump to be replatformed, to be really visible in the media. It, that only helps Trump Incorporated. So that's, that's my case. That's your story, and you're sticking to it. I'm All sticking right. to it. All right, Matt Robeson. We have to talk about Texas, and there are lots of facets to this story, obviously. What will be the lasting uh, political and policy fallout from the prolonged loss of heat and power last week in the Lone Star State? And uh, Congressman Hodes, we'll start with you this time. Man, oh, man. Well, it's cold down there in Texas, and and uh, they weren't ready for it. ERCOT, the Texas grid uh, uh, controller, the, the overseer of uh, the grid, apparently just didn't prepare. Neither did the fossil fuel plants, which supply heat and power to Texans. They weren't prepared for cold weather. Nobody was prepared um, because Texas is down south and it's hot and it never happens except we got climate change. Um, and and by the way, it wasn't windmills freezing that caused Texas to lose power. If the windmills uh, in Texas froze, it's because they weren't properly prepared for winter because the windmills in Sweden and Norway and Denmark and the northernmost climes all seem to function just fine during the winter with a little bit of preparation. So there was a massive failure from the electric uh, power providers. Uh, the grid was in is in bad shape because, by the way, the grid 
is an anomaly in the overall structure of the electric grid in the country. And the grid is Texas's grid. It's unique to Texas. And so um, you have this specter of a state which was calling to secede. Uh, it always wants to secede from the United States, now begging for federal help. Um, and you've got a governor who, just by way of example, never even bothered during the course of this emergency to call the mayor of Houston to say, how are you doing? How are you people doing? How are Houstonians doing? What's going on there? Never even bothered to call the mayor of Houston, um, just as an example of what leadership in Texas really means. So the governor uh, was looking for people to blame. Uh, I haven't heard too much from the governor lately. Now, of course, we did see a lot of Ted Cruz, and this was uh, Ted's excellent, excellent vacation. <laughs> Ted, Ted, Ted's excellent vacation showed Ted in a polo shirt wheeling his wheelie luggage up to the up to the ticket counter with the help of some uh, local law enforcement to clear the way for him to escape the cold because it got cold in his house and no u.s senator deserves to be cold like that i mean i mean it's it's cold and his and his kids his kids were cold and it was time for a vacation he'd been working awfully hard remember he just came through that big impeachment where he had to put his feet up and play pac-man on on his on his ipad and and now it was cold and he wanted to go to cancun because i mean really what could he do I mean, he's just a U.S. senator. What could he do staying at home in Texas to help the millions of people without heat, light, power, water or food? After all, he's just a U.S. senator. So you ask, what will be the fallout? You know, it's hard to tell because it's Texas and Texas is a rather unique political environment. Um, Texas may be a, a Donald Trump kind of place where where the governor and the folks in control of the utilities could um, shut off all the power and lights uh, for days on end and nobody nobody would hold it against them. On the other hand, um, you know, you had Beto O'Rourke, who was making uh, hourly appearances, it, it, it appeared on MSNBC, concerned, trying to do something to help people. Um, ultimately, I think that as a nation, we are unprepared for the effects of climate change. As a nation, including Texas, uh, our electricity, our grid is vulnerable. Our infrastructure is vulnerable. Um, uh, Texas is perhaps, in this case, uh, along with Louisiana and Mississippi, prime examples of states that aren't prepared for the effects of climate change, which run into incalculable. The, the, the economic impacts are 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 enormous. Uh, it's going to take Texas, the economy in Texas, which somebody pointed out is the, I think, ninth largest economy in the world. It's going to take them a long time to recover from this. The The overarching question is, will we as a nation, will even re recalcitrant states who don't believe in climate change uh, come to grips with the fact that our infrastructure is antiquated and needs to be fixed? And as for Ted Cruz, I think he'll sail right through this. I don't think anybody cares. He, after all, he turned around and came back home and uh, participated so meaningfully in the questioning of Merrick Garland that clearly he was on the job. I, I, I doubt that it's going to have an impact. 
except maybe in the mind of Beto O'Rourke, who will look for another, an, an, perhaps another run for Ted Cruz's seat. Alicia, any long-term ramifications here for uh, Senator Cruz? No, the electorate's mind is both short and fickle. It just is. You know, I think what Ted Cruz flying Cancun in the middle of the peak of a disaster in Texas is just so dumb when it comes to optics. I mean, I just, where was his staff? Like if I were on his staff, I would handcuff myself to him before he left to go to the airport. I literally would. He would be dragging me behind him before I let him go in public to get on a plane to go to Cancun. So I cannot fathom what was going through his mind. I personally don't think the wife and kids should be attacked. Look, if they want to go, they can go. What do they have to do with it? But Ted Cruz needed just for optics, whether he could do anything or not, to stay in Texas and show he cared about his constituency. Now, putting that aside, the disaster in Texas and what happened and who's to blame, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I don't think it's political. I mean, other than the independents, we need to know there are three grids in this country, the Western grid, the Eastern grid, and the Texas grid because they didn't want to be part of the federal system. So in that respect, Texas wants to be independent. Texas is going to have to be independent and get themselves out of this mess. Um, a lot of that goes on the companies who did not, to Congressman Hode's point, have the infrastructure to prepare for sub-zero temperatures, which they should. Um, it, it's happened. They've gotten really bad temperatures before. Wind turbines froze up. Gas pipelines froze up. Generators froze up. 40% of available electricity was not able to go through the system and was taken off the market. That's a huge percentage. That's on the backs of the power companies and anyone involved in the infrastructure there, including that governing board with that weird name that begins with an E. And, you know, I feel bad for the people. The other big problem is the people in Texas who took a gamble on variable rates of electricity are getting $4,000 bills, $5,000 bills, over $10,000 electrical bill for the month of February. There's some personal responsibility here. You took a risk on flexible rates because it was cheap when it was good. Then it goes to purchase in the wholesale market and you're spending 10,000 times the amount of money. And you should have foreseen that coming because you took a risk because you wanted to save money. And now all of a sudden federal taxpayers are supposed to bail everybody out because people took a gamble on something that didn't work and they were unprepared for. And look, some families should probably be helped with some federal aid. Certainly anything that was caused by national disaster should fall under FEMA. But when it comes to the electric grid and the mess that Texas is in because they're independent and couldn't get electricity from other states, they're independent. Be independent. All right, Matt, your thoughts on uh, Senator Cruz and the lack of preparedness uh, energy-wise? Well, snaps to Alicia Preston for, I, I too would like to dunk on Ted Cruz's staff as a former staffer. Um, this is absolute political malpractice. And to Paul's point, I mean, look, Paul, you were a member of Congress during disasters in New Hampshire. It's not all just showboating and, you know, being there for the cameras. There are actually things you can do for your constituents. I mean, not to dismiss the value, by the way, of showing some leadership and some shared suffering. People actually want their representatives, their elected leaders to be there with them and sharing in their pain and their suffering. That is the least. That is literally the very least you can do. But of course, you know, you had a situation in Houston where people didn't know where the shelters were. People didn't know where to access aid. You can, at the very least, as a senator or a member of the House, even if you're not directly involved in the administration of relief like a governor, like an executive in a state is, 
you can provide information. You can connect people to resources. There are things you could do. So yes, absolute total intergalactic stupidity on the part of Ted Cruz's staff and, you know, Ted Cruz himself. Um, you know, and just to just to Alicia's other point, you know, from a substantive standpoint, I do think there's a little bit of uh, overreach, a little bit too much reductiveness on both sides of the political debate about this. The Green New Deal is not to blame. Wind turbines are not to blame. But it's also not entirely true to say that the highly anti-regulatory spirit of Texas Republicans and the way they've undertaken administration of their grid is totally to blame either. Um, you know, like, like most things, there's a gray area. There's a lot of nuance in here. I do think that Alicia makes a really, really good point that, and, and this is a little down in the weeds, I'll keep, it, I'll keep it short, but the way they've constructed their market, every other market in, in every other region of the country, what you pay for when you pay your electric bill is you pay for the electrons that you're getting, the energy, but you also make a payment to generators for capacity, for being available. Texas doesn't do things that way. The way they compensate their generators of electricity is they just let the free market go wild and they let prices spike when there's a crisis. Maybe that's not the smartest construct. And I think to some degree, this is a failure of political leadership because it's a way of hiding the ball on ratepayers, on taxpayers. It's a way of saying, no, you don't ever have to pay for these long-term investments that we all need to make as the climate changes. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is a failure there of being upfront with voters, with ratepayers, um, and, and being realistic about, look, these things are gonna cost you something. Are there any politic, uh, political lessons to be learned from the saga of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who uh, oversaw what at best was misleading data about the uh, number of COVID deaths in nursing homes, and at worst, a cover-up. Is this a case where the cover-up is worse than the crime in the eyes of the public? Is Cuomo now on track to lose his bid for re-election, Alicia? Well, I think the best lesson to come from this would be don't write a book about how awesome you are as a leader <laughs> when you're covering up stuff and more people are dying. Wait till it all shakes out first, I think would be a really good tidbit. You know, I think it's horrible what he did. I think um, whether it's, I, I think it's a cover up. I think they blatantly lied. I mean, the woman who Tesla, who spoke in the phone call said that they deliberately withheld it. The rationale as to why is irrelevant to me. Um, we need transparency. I criticized President Trump when it was determined that he withheld information. And I'll criticize Andrew Cuomo when he withheld information. It doesn't matter what the information is. It doesn't matter to the extent that did it cause more harm. People, particularly a year ago, we're going through traumatic times, all of us were. I mean, it's hard to remember a year ago, we've kind of gotten used to the world the way it is today to an extent, but we were scared. We didn't know what was happening. People were dying at very quick, sharp uptick levels. And a lot of them were our seniors. And to hide the reality of how bad it was at the time is just not right. When you claim to be this fantastic leader role modeling how it should be done. And it was all a farce. 
forget about it. Forget about it. It's New York. You know, I mean, all kinds of things happen in New York. You want to get a bagel with a schmear, but these days you can't because everything's closed. You gotta can't even go out of your house. So you want to go visit a nursing home, you go visit a nursing home. You want to put some people there, you put some people there. You know, uh, just because the governor said that they ought to take in COVID patients, uh, it didn't turn out to be too smart, but you know, what are you going to do? You got to put them some way. So you put them in the nursing homes. They're going to die anyway. I mean, come on, just forget about it. And the fact that 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 uh, Ms. DeRosa there, the state's highest um, appointed official, uh, she got her facts a little bit wrong. I mean, her explanations uh, are not too not not too smart. But but uh, what are you going to do? She's just you know, she's just a right hand person to, to the governor. The governor's a good guy. He just uh, talks a little too much. And other than that, uh, I don't think you're going to worry too much about what happens in New York. I mean, the governor's, governor's OK. Listen, people die. OK, they're going to die in nursing homes. They're going to die in hospitals, wherever they're going to die. They died. And uh, who wants to talk about it? Certainly not the governor. The only thing I'd add to um, Alicia's rundown, which I agree with, um, and I, I guess that was a visit from uh, the governor, high governor, is that the the political lesson that I was taught early on, actually, I, I learned this from from David Gergen, who served four presidents in a, in a communications role um, as a senior advisor and has gone through any number of scandals, including in the Clinton White House. And there, as all of the scandals began to build up, the continued pattern was that the lawyers were in the room, the lawyers were driving the process. So the lawyer instinct is bunker down, cover up, don't give away anything. And maybe that makes sense from a legal process standpoint. But unfortunately, it's the exact opposite of the right thing to do in a political context. The rule in politics is get it out early, get it all out and get it out yourself. Don't let other people drag it out from you in a drip, drip, drip over time, because that is the political death knell. So I, you know, no, I don't, I don't really think Cuomo is in trouble here. He's still at like 57% approval. That's only down something like five points. He's very strong in New York, but, and this is a big, but on the end of this, that's only the case if you don't continue to see the drip. So if our friends are listening, or I guess the governor is on the line right now. Um, so governor, since you are listening, I will just say, sit down all your people in a room and say, mistakes were made here. I get it. And some of them were probably made by me. Let's look at everything we did. If there is anything else to this that has not yet come out, forget the lawyers, get it out, rip off the Band-Aid, release it now, take your hit, take your medicine. Don't let this continue to drip because that's where a political wound and a serious piece of political malfeasance turns into a fatal blow. When I was a congressman, I had a recurring nightmare. And in my recurring nightmare, I was standing, uh, holding a press conference outside the Cannon office building. And Robeson was on one side of me. My wife was on the other. And I was coming clean to the press corps about some horrendous thing I'd done. And because the nightmare was a recurring nightmare, the the horrendous thing that I had done 
always was different because there were never ending possibilities of horrendous things that I that that I that I that I could do, whether it was cheating on my wife or stealing money from my campaign or saying the wrong thing about somebody at the wrong time. But that nightmare stayed with me throughout my time in Congress. And I have a feeling that it was Robeson's fault. I just like to say to all the aggregators out there, this is a dream that Paul Hodes is talking about. None of these things were things that happened. Do not aggregate the previous sentence from Paul Hodes. He has done none of these things. But the lesson, the lesson was that I was coming clean as painful as it was in my recurring nightmare. I was out there telling people, oh, I was how sorry I was for whatever it was I had done and begging their forgiveness. Because one of the extraordinary things, at least that I've observed about politics, is that when a political figure uh, comes clean to whatever extent coming clean is possible and then and then begs for mercy and apologizes and, and, and apologizes for an error in judgment and says, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to do better because all I care about is serving you great people who've who've given me the honor of serving you. It works. It generally works because in the United States, we believe in America, we, we believe in redemption. We believe in the power of forgiveness. Um, so that at least is is my not was ni- my nightmare. And my lesson, I agree with Matt Robeson, you got to come clean. You got to come clean completely. You got to come clean early. And then you just beg for mercy and you're fine. You're fine. Nothing happens. Let me just jump on this PSA or free advice we're we're giving to all politicians or future politicians out there. Matt and Paul are 100% correct. I remember several years back, I was running a congressional race in a different state. We had a tough primary and my candidate had gotten a DWI about 10 years before. And I said to him, this is going to come out. He goes, what are we doing? I said, I already spoke to the editor of the largest newspaper in the district. I said, this is going to be on the front page of Sunday's newspaper. He said, you did what? I said, you got to trust me here. We're going to get it out before they get it out because they're going to get it out. And it was in the largest paper, front page, Sunday paper. That's a deal I cut with the paper. And he won the primary by six points because he controlled the message and there was nothing else to say. Get it out there. Bam. Absolutely. And one, one final point on this. I, another one of my mentors and uh, all my mentors seem to be Republicans. Um, I, I don't, we'll have to, we'll have to explore that. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you. Yeah. We'll have to explore that in some future therapy session. Um, one of my former mentors who uh, went on to be the ambassador to India under president George W. Bush, we were talking when I was in grad school about you know, one of these political scandal incidents. And he kind of cut us off. And by the way, this is grad school. So like most of us were pretty liberal. And he was like, hold on a second. Aside from the political dimension about, you know, getting things out early and all that. What about the idea that lying is wrong? Have you thought about that? And of course it brought us up all short because we're thinking to ourselves, oh, you know, we're managing and we're all up at our higher strategic mode and we're operatives and we're so clever. But actually, it's easy to forget. Isn't lying bad? Isn't it, Don't you have a responsibility to tell the truth? I'd like to think that standard exists somewhere in America, but maybe I'm naive. Well, let's move on to the uh, latest survey from 
the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, their poll, uh, voters were asked about their trust in the news media as a fair referee in determining what constitutes misinformation. A distrust of the media is virtually universal. 98% among Republicans and is universal uh, among the very conservative. But trust is also weak among Democrats, 51%, and liberals, 46%, suggesting that the media's credibility problem is beginning to transcend party and ideology. How big a problem is this, and what can we do about it, Congressman Hodes? Well, your, your question is, is, is a rhetorical question, Mr. Kale, because we are it. I mean, it is us. We are talking about us now because we are the media. The, 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 that's you and me and Alicia and Matt. We are now to be distrusted by, I, I have no doubt that even given Alicia's impeccable credentials as a, as a Republican of conscience and a longtime strategist for Republicans, uh, I would say that 98% of the far right probably think we all are spreading nothing but lies and disinformation. As for our Democratic colleagues, who knows what they think about the media, but it certainly are, is an interesting number to think that a small majority even of Democrats uh, distrust the media. Um, you know, we're, when, we, when we say the media, um, I'm not exactly sure what it is we're talking about. Are we talking about um, uh, Rush Limbaugh? who spread disinformation? Are we talking about Facebook? Does Facebook compri now comprise the media? Um, and if so, if what we're really talking about are the monopolistic digital engines of information and disinformation that have now taken over our lives, um, you know, there is a, there's a lot, there could be a lot of reason to distrust um, those digital outlets. Uh, Facebook makes its money by selling our information. It'll sell it to anybody. Um, Facebook is was happy to uh, accommodate Russian trolls who wanted to disrupt our election. Facebook claims it has algorithms that control political disinformation. And now what they've done is said, uh, we got in so much trouble, we're going to cut back on providing any political information to people. So in light of the uh, onslaught of digital misinformation, it seems uh, reasonable for people to suspect what is happening with the media. The Facebook is really different than the New York Times, which uh, inv still invests in investigative journalism, which um, I I'm not going to claim that it is unbiased in its uh, center left slant, uh, but it's certainly a very different kind of media and represented a very different kind of media era than the one we're in. Overall, if you take a look at the way the media handled the Donald Trump uh, candidacy and um, for a long time, the presidency, there was a real failure on the media to take him seriously, to dig behind what he was saying, to really uh, deliver information to the public that would have been helpful in determining whether or not 
uh, we uh, should have elected him um, or not and avoided the catastrophe that his four years represents. So we were on a very, very um, shaky ground, I think, just with the basic question about what is the media, the issue around the media's role in the 21st century um, as the fourth estate designed to provide information and, and balance um, is more crucial than ever. Uh, you know, I mean, we all, uh, those of us on this panel uh, of whatever age grew up in a very different media age. And so the challenges of media and information and disinformation have grown. I don't think we're close to resolving them yet. Um, and who knows even whether the attempts that Congress is going to make at regulating or legislating around media um, uh, is going to is going to have any impact on the public's mistrust of the misinformation that they think they're being fed. Alicia, why the widespread lack of trust in the media these days? Well, Paul's right. What is media is the big question. But there's a massive, massive miscommunication by misconception by everybody that media is suddenly biased. Media has always been biased. Every major city in the world had two newspapers, one representing one side, one representing the other. I'm going back hundreds of years. So the I and, and the purpose was to represent the political views. And I think that misconception leads to a lot of the distrust we have right now. And, you know, the Boston Globe and the union leader, I get both on Sunday and it's not. And then people say, well, but it used to just be on the editorial pages. That's not true. The stories they choose to cover is part of the liberal versus conservative representation of the newspaper. But we suddenly are under this belief that the media used to be 100 percent biased. And then Donald Trump came along and they hated him. So they got biased. That's just not historically accurate. I don't know if we can ever get back to trusting the media because people don't want to. People want to believe their own agendas. That's where the fake news comes in. That's where the sharing of memes and getting your information from Twitter and Facebook comes in. And I think it's unfortunate. I think it's created a very ignorant sect of society. Um, and people just refuse to believe. Someone posted something the other day about why are gas prices so high? Well, I had read an NBC article that was actually very um, policy-based and, and technical about why gas prices have increased. And I said, this is the best explanation that I've seen so far. And it got panned by people who said, I'm not reading that. NBC is a liberal whatever. They wouldn't even read it because it was from NBC when it was actually the most informed piece on the matter I've seen. I don't know how we put this genie back in the bottle. I think it's unfortunate. And I think it's on every individual to verify what they're reading when they can and understand that you can't do all your own research and information when your encyclopedia is some dude on Facebook. I believe that people respond to incentives and uh, as in the movie, All the President's Men, it's incumbent to follow the money. You saw in the fourth quarter of 2020 that despite losing the ratings lead to CNN, Fox News saw a 17% jump in pre-tax profit. So you're getting fewer viewers, but you're more profitable, which goes to show that there is a powerful business model to be had in more traditional broadcast media, as well as print media, in serving one of those niches, serving one of those tribes and one of those political channels. We cannot expect legacy media organizations to act not in their own best business interests, 
their own shareholders are not going to allow it. Their own business owners are not going to allow it. So there's a bunch of things that probably need to happen. One is that we probably need to find a way to create media organizations that are, and this is not my idea. I'd like to credit the person who came up with it, but I'll, I'll leave them anonymous. We probably need to endow not-for-profit media organizations with some leadership that comes from highly credible members of both political tribes um, to try to create some credible sources of news. And we also, as Paul was saying, have to attack social media. We should remove the like and share buttons from Twitter and Facebook. It's called demetrification. We should remove the incentives for dunking on people online and sharing misinformation. We should kill the bots by, by, by forcing verification of everyone's accounts on social media. And finally, to Alicia's point, we should, why wouldn't we force these media companies to split the newsroom and the opinion side? Why do I need to have my New York Times or my NBC verifiable high journalistic standard information as part of the same organization that's attached to an opinion site that half the country finds odious and reprehensible? Same thing on the Fox News side. These media organizations should split opinion from news. They can be spinoff companies, whatever. But the news is tainted right now by the presence of opinion. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap up this program. Balance of Power is done for another week. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hodes, Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us for our next Balance of Power.